This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. This is our third episode discussing Kate Chopin's controversial novella, The Awakening. Week one, we introduced Chopin and her life in the book itself, and we talked about uh, what a stir it made during her lifetime, ultimately really resulting in it being forgotten and then rediscovered midway through the 20th century. And, uh, you know, last week we spent all of our time on the vacation resort island of Grand Isle. We met Mr. and Mrs. Pontier, as well uh, as the two women who uh, represent Edna, our protagonists, those two alternating lifestyles. Um, Edna Pontier, we were quick to learn, is not a happily married woman. Her husband is outwardly kind, uh, but readers are told outright that love and mutual respect was really never part of the agreement between these two. And Edna is indulged by Mr. Pontier for sure, and he gives her anything she wants in terms of money or material things, uh, but in exchange, she's his ornament, an expensive hobby, um, maybe even a pet, something to be prized, or as Ibsen would describe it, a beautiful doll for his dollhouse. <laughs> That's right. And the story starts in the summer at a vacation resort town on Grand Isle, Louisiana. While vacationing on the island, Edna Pontillier experiences what Chopin terms the awakening. She awakens to the understanding that she is not a pet or a doll in a dollhouse. And just like Nora in that dollhouse, she decides she doesn't want to be that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I, and I guess if that were the only thing to the story, we'd have to say, sorry, Kate, you know, Ibsen beat you to this about 20 years earlier. And <laughs> in, in Ibsen's story, uh, Nora awakens when her husband, Torvald, turns on her over money. That's a good point. Uh, what awakens Edna in this book is not a marital crisis over money. It is a crisis that awakens her, and it totally informs how she views her marriage. It's a crisis concerning her husband uh, as the catalyst. 
She is awakened to her own humanity by discovering her own sensuality. I want to highlight that this awakening isn't overtly sexually provoked either. There's not a man that's going to come in and seduce Edna. She does not go off with a wild group of friends. She's left vulnerable, if you want to think of it that way, because she's in a loveless marriage. But she is sensually and emotionally provoked through three very different relationships, all of which affect her physically as well as emotionally. The first is with this Creole woman, Adele Ratignon. Uh, One is with a younger Creole man, Robert Lebrun. And the third with the provocative music of Madame Rhys. Experiences with these three awaken something in Edna that encourages her, maybe even forces her to rebel. And she does. She rebels against her husband. She rebels against the culture. She rebels against this person that she's always been, against the roles she's always played, against really everything she's ever known. Well, you know, there's a problem with rebellion. It, it's only going to take you so far. Uh, you may know what you don't want, uh, but does that help you understand what you do want? I mean, and that is Edna's problem. Where do we go from here? And so in Chapter 17, we return with the Pontelliers to their home in New Orleans. And as we've suggested before, New Orleans is not like any other city in America It is in these cultural distinctives of Creole life at the turn of the century that Chopin situates our protagonist. But before we can understand some of the universal and even the psychological struggles Chopin so carefully is going to sketch for us, I think it would be fun to understand a little of the culture of this time period in this very unique place. Gary, tell us a little bit about this world. What is special about Esplanade Street? (laughs) Well, you need only uh, Google Tourism New Orleans, and a a description of Esplanade Street will be in the first list of articles you run into. And, you know, let me read the opening sentence from the travel website, neworleans.com. One of the quietest, most scenic and historic streets in New Orleans, Esplanade Avenue, is a hidden treasure running through the heart of the city. From its beginning at the foot of the Mississippi Levee to its terminus at the entrance of City Park, Esplanade is a slow-paced thoroughfare with quiet ambiance and local charm. According to the same website, Esplanade Street during the days of Chopin really functioned as uh, a millionaire's row, which is, of course, why the Pontelliers live there. You know, it actually forms the border between the French Quarter and the uh, less exclusive Faubourg Marigny. Uh, at the turn of the last century, it was grand and it was populated by wealthy Creoles who were building enormous mansions meant to compete with the mansions of the Americans on St. Charles Avenue. Uh, the Americans? Aren't they all Americans? Well, <laughs> yeah, yes. That was the term for the non-Creole white people, uh, the ones that descended from the British or came to New Orleans from other parts of the U.S. And Esplanade Street was life at its most grand. I mean, there's no suffering like you might find in other parts of New Orleans. And the Pontiers were wealthy and they were glamorous, and these two were living competitively. The first chapter, or really, let me say this, the first paragraph of chapter 17 calls the Pontelier mansion dazzling white, and the inside is just as dazzling as the outside. Mrs. Pontelier's silver and crystal were the envy of women of less generous husbands, 
Mr. Pontelier was very proud of this, and according to our sassy narrator, loved to walk around his house to examine everything. He, and let me quote, greatly valued his possessions. They were his, and I quote again, household gods. The Pontelliers had been married for six years, and Edna, over this time, had adjusted. I mean, she'd adjusted to the culture and the obligations that went along with being a woman in a competitive high society of Creole New Orleans. And one of these obligations apparently centered around this very serious etiquette of calling cards and house calls. You know, I am a little familiar with this, as I know you are too, Gary, because right now we're kind of neck deep into Bridgerton, <laughs> and they do that there. And we saw it, you know, when we did Emma too. But, Gary, tell us a little about, from a historical perspective, what is so serious about calling cards? Oh, deadly serious, <laughs> you know. Uh, well, this is first and foremost a European custom uh, during this time period, it started with simple cards designed to announce a person's arrival, but as in all things human, you know, it grew and it grew into something a lot larger and subtextual. And of course, all the rules of which nobody speaks about, but the rules exist. And <laughs> during the Victorian era, the designs on the cards, as well as the etiquette surrounding, were really elaborate. Uh, a person would leave one's calling card at a friend's house, and by friend, meaning a person in your community. You may or may not actually be friends, but you uh, dropping off a card was a way to express appreciation or offer condolences or just say hello. If someone moved into the neighborhood, you're expected to reach out with a card, and a new arrival is expected to do the same to everyone else. And, you know... Um, the process would involve uh, putting the card on an elaborate silver tray in the entrance hall, and a tray full of calling cards was like social media for Victorians. <laughs> it was like thousands of likes oh, on your my Instagram. Goodness. You were clearly demonstrating your popularity. And, you know, for example, if we were doing this today, we would have a place in the entrance of our home and we'd make sure the cards of the richest and most popular people we knew were, were on the tray. And we would want people who dropped off cards to be impressed by how many other callers we had and how impressive our friends were. The entire process was dictated by complicated social rules. And as uh, Leonce explains to Edna, to go against these rules could mean social suicide. I mean, are we talking about Instagram or are we talking? <laughs> What's the difference? I'm not sure what the difference is. Uh, you know, it could also mean financial suicide because business really always had a human component. And the function of an upper class woman would be to fulfill a, a very specific social obligation, and this involved delivering and accepting these calling cards. Every woman would have a specific day where she would make it known that she was receiving cards, and the other ladies would go around town to pay house calls. And, you know, in some cases, um, a woman might remain in her carriage while her groom would take the car to the door. You know, during the Regency era, like in Jane Austen's day, there was a system of bending down the corner. <laughs> it just gets more and more complex. It does, uh, you know. And, and uh, so, if you bent down the corner of the card, uh, if you were you did that, if you were there in person, if not, you were just sending it. But by Chopin's day, I, I'm not sure if that was even still a thing. But 
you know, the main thing was that the card would be dropped off on the special silver tray. The tray. <laughs> if it were a first call, the caller might only leave a card. But if you were calling on a prescribed day, the groom would further inquire if the lady of the house were home. A visit would consist of about 20 minutes of polite conversation. It was important that if someone called on you, you must reciprocate and call on them the visiting day. And this was their version of social networking. Well, I mean, I can see how a lot of business would, would really hinge on some of this hacking off other people's wives. But anyway, to get back to, to Edna, uh, the Tuesday to get back, Edna leaves and it's her reception day and she doesn't receive any of her callers. No, no. In fact, as we go through the rest of the book, I'm not sure she ever receives callers again. And this is an affront to the entire society. It's an embarrassment to her husband. It's bad for business, as Mr. Pontelier tries to explain to his wayward wife. I think it's interesting to listen to this exchange. Read those. What, read what he says. Well, first of all, let me say this. Is she guilty of basically taking down her Facebook page? I think she is, or ah. her website. Well, let me read what he says. Why, my dear, I should think you'd understand by this time that people don't do such things. We've got to observe lay covenances if we ever expect to get on and keep up with the procession. If you felt that you had to leave this afternoon, you should have left some suitable explanation for your absences. Mr. Pontier assumes that Mrs. Pontier is on the same page on wanting the same things that he wants. And what he wants is to keep up with the procession and... They've been doing this for the last six years, and they've been doing it pretty well. Well, yeah, I think it's obvious. And another thing that I notice is he actually doesn't even rail at her for skipping out, like if she were some employee or something. Mr. Pontier, unlike her father, because we're going to see her father isn't like that in the rest of the book, he's really not hard on her. He's indulgent. The problem in this entire book is not that Mr. Pontier is abusive, overtly, or cruel. Let's read the part where he tries to kind of help her get out of what he considers to be a negligent blunder. The Mrs. Delocidas's? I worked a big deal in futures for their father this morning. Nice girls. It's time they were getting married. Mrs. Belthrop? I tell you what it is, Edna, you can't afford to snub Mrs. Belthrop. Why, Belthrop could buy and sell us ten times over. His business is worth a good round sum to me. You'd better write her a note. Mrs. James Highcamp, Hugh, the less you have to do with Mrs. Highcamp, the better. Madame LaForce, came all the way from Carrollton, too. Poor old soul. Miss Wiggs, Miss Eleanor Boltons, he pushed the cards aside. Mercy, exclaimed Edna, who had been fuming. Why are you taking the thing so seriously and making such a fuss over it? I'm not making any fuss over it, but it's just such seeming trifles that we've got to take seriously. Such things count. Well, if taken in isolation, this exchange isn't offensive. In fact, it makes me want to take sides with Mr. Pontelier. And I would have if it weren't back-to-back -back with this terrible scene that comes up next with him complaining about his dinner, then walking out to spend the rest of the evening at the club, where he clearly spends most of the time, and I'm left to wonder, what does he do at that club? But that's beside the point here. Edna is left in sadness after dinner, and I want to quote this. She went and stood at an open window and looked out upon the deep tangle of sea garden, tea garden below. And if you've read the story of an hour, that kind of reminds you of that story anyway. 
Here again, we have another image of this little cage bird or a person who's just looking out into the world and not feeling a part of it. Quote, she was seeing herself and finding herself in just sweet half darkness, which met her moods. But the voices were not soothing that came to her from the darkness in the sky above and the stars. They jeered and sounded mournful notes without promise, devoid even of home. She turned back into the room and began to walk to and from its whole length without stopping, without resting. She carried in her hands a thin handkerchief, which she tore into ribbons, rolled into a ball, and flung from her. Once she stopped and, taking off her wedding ring, flung it upon the carpet. When she saw it there, she stamped her heel upon it, striving to crush it. But her small boot heel did not make an indenture nor a mark upon the glittering circlet. In a sweeping passion, she seized a glass vase from the table and flung it upon the tiles of the hearth. She wanted to destroy something. The crash and the clatter were what she wanted to hear. Because <laughs> she's clearly angry, I you know. know. And, and not just because Mr. Pontier complained about the food and walked out of the house. She's just now angry about everything. It's all coming to the surface. Well, and never mind the fact that we're not told about what's going on at this club. But there are several indications in different parts of this book that Mr. Pontier may not be just smoking cigars in crowded <laughs> rooms. Adele even tells Edna that she disapproves of Mr. Pontelier's club. She goes on to say later on, it's a pity Mr. Pontelier doesn't stay home more in the evenings. I think you would be more, well, if you don't mind me saying, more united. I do want to say that Edna did not want, does not want him no. to stay home. <laughs> she responded to Adele, oh dear, no. What should I do if he stayed home? We wouldn't have anything to say to each other. But that, again, is beside the point. The fact remains that Mr. Pontier does not see any need to nurture any sort of human or intimate relationship with Edna. Theirs comes across to me, when I listen to the way he's talking to her, as a business arrangement. Something that Edna is doing to keep up the procession as if she were an employee. True. And, and although I don't know if this is the really the right place to point this out, but in terms of... Um, the sexual indiscretions that may or may not be going on with Mr. Pontier when he's at the club, there's likely a lot in the culture at large going on under the surface that a person from the outside wouldn't really even immediately be aware of. And, you know, Edna is an outsider and she's naive at first to all that goes on in her Victorian Creole world. And uh, there just is no such thing as lofty chastity amongst the Creole people, uh, you know, or any people, I might add. Although Edna initially seems to believe that really in spite of all the sexual innuendo in the language, nothing sexual is ever going on. And there's just too many indications otherwise in the story that that is not the case. And the reader can see it even though Edna can't. Oh, that is so true. And if you didn't catch it on Grand Isle, which you probably did, in the city, it's just totally obvious, especially the farther along you get into the story. Mrs. James Highcamp is one example. She's the one that married the American, but she uses her daughter as a pretext. It literally explicitly says this for cultivating these relationships with younger men. This is so well known. You heard it in the calling card thing that Mr. Pontier tells Edna, you know, the less to do with her, the better. But she's not the only example. Victor basically details an encounter with a prostitute to Edna, finishing with this line, calling her a beauty and saying, you know, well, he has to stop talking about it because Edna wouldn't comprehend such things. 
And of course, and this is the most obvious example of all, the whole character of Arabin, with whom Edna does eventually get sexually involved, his reputation is all throughout the book. It precedes him. (laughs) Well, Edna's awakening to all of this particular world can explain part of her anger. But really, there's more to Edna's awakening than just Leonce or the new culture she's a part of or, or really any outside factor. Yeah, and to me, that's what's so universal about whatever's going on inside of Edna's head, and that's where we can find ourselves, and that's what's great about literature. The setting is 120 years old, but humanity, we're still the same. <laughs> we are, <laughs> you know, and, and I agree and love that, uh, but let's get back to her setting for a moment. Um, I think it's worth mentioning that the 19th century culture of the Creole people in New Orleans is really messy and complicated um, in its own unique way. It's fascinating, but for those who are not of the privileged class, life was often, you know, a very harsh reality. And uh, the world, especially in the South, was problematic for people of mixed race heritage. And, and so and this is more true the closer we get to the Civil War and through the Jim Crow era. But those who called themselves white Creoles had a problem because the uh, large existence of the free people of mixed race and of mixed race ancestry in New Orleans, there was a strong outside pressure to maintain this illusion of racial purity. But the evidence suggests that this wasn't the reality at all. And let me throw out just a few interesting numbers just to tell you what I'm Ooh, talking okay. about. From 1782 to 1791. The St. Louis Catholic Church in New Orleans recorded 2,688 births of mixed-race children. Now, that doesn't seem like an outlandishly large number, but let me throw this other number out that might put some perspective on it. The same congregation at that time only recorded 40 marriages of black or mixed-race people. Now, I know sometimes Catholics can be known for having large families, but I'm not sure that 20 women can produce 2,688 births. So something (laughs) was going on, despite what it looked like on the surface. That number suggests another explanation might be in order. (laughs) (laughs) No, exactly. And and by 1840, that number grows from 2,088 to over 20,000 with mixed-race Creoles, representing 18% of the total population of the residents of New Orleans. It's almost one-fifth. And if that doesn't convince you, here's another indicator. During the same time period, many, many free women of color were acquiring prime real estate in New Orleans under their own names. Think about that. These women had houses built and they passed the states on to their children. But notice this detail. The children of these mixed race women had different last names from their mothers. And we're not talking about small amounts of property here. By 1860, $15 million worth of property was in the name of children with last names that were not the same as the last names of their mothers. Oh, and by the way, a lot of that property was in the neighborhood where Edna rents her pigeon house just around the corner from Esplanade Street. You know, in other words, around the corner and walking distance from Millionaire Row. Well, that gives you something to think about, and it does add a new dimension to the subtext of the language. (laughs) Yes, it does. It's a little bit racy. Uh, And it's likely something readers of the day would have certainly understood, you know, more than we do 100 years later uh, when the stakes of uh, identifying as being mixed race heritage are not the difference between freedom and slavery. But beyond just that, it's an example of cultures clashing. 
Edna represents an outwardly prudish Puritan culture coming into a society that is French, Spanish, Caribbean, very different thinking. This is a de facto multicultural world. It's Catholic. It's French-speaking. It's international. She doesn't understand what she's seen. And in that regard, her own situational reality is something she's realizing she's only beginning to understand. And she comes into it all very gradually. She's not, in Adele's words, one of them. Uh, in fact, there may have been irony in the narrator in Grand Isle suggesting that Robert LeBrun's relationships every summer were platonic. His relationship with the girl in Mexico, we will see, most certainly isn't. But nor was his relationship with Mariquita on Grand Isle, the girl that they meet on the day they spent together. Yeah, uh, you may be right. Perhaps there is a real sense that Edna has been blind, and, and perhaps not just to her husband, but she's blind to an entire society. It presents itself in one way, but in reality is something entirely different altogether. When she visits Adele and her husband at their home, everything in Adele's home seems perfect. Adele, we've already established this. She's the perfect woman. She's living the perfect life. Adele is beautiful. Her husband adores her. The Ratignolles' marriage is blissful. In fact, to use the narrator's words, the Ratignolles understood each other perfectly. If ever the fusion of two human beings into one has been accomplished on this sphere, it was surely in their <laughs> union. <laughs> Do you think that that's sarcasm again? I mean, was it truly perfect or, or was it just presenting itself to be perfect? Well, you know, that's really hard to tell. I mean, maybe they have worked out a great life together. I think there's a lot in this passage and when we look at their family structure to suggest that they're very happy together. Edna even expresses that their home is much happier than hers. She quotes this famous Chinese proverb, better a dinner of herbs. The entire quote is better a dinner of herbs than a stalled ox where hate is. And meaning her house you know, Edna's house may have better food, but it's a hateful place. And this is the opposite of that. I mean, poor thing. I mean, she sees her reality for what it is. And I still see a little sarcasm <laughs> in the narrator's language. The perfection doesn't, you don't right. buy it. <laughs> but even if Adele is every bit as perfect as she seems, and even if her home is every bit as perfect as it seems, and, you know, even if her husband is every bit as perfect as he seems in the most real ways, uh, that could all be true, and it still wouldn't matter. Well, yeah, that's the point. I mean, the retinol life, it can be perfect. It can be everything it appears, but it wasn't what Edna wants. Edna leaves Adele's happy home realizing that even if she could have it, she doesn't want it. She wouldn't want that world. Even if Leonce loved her, it's not her. The problem is that's all she's got from her problem solving. All she knows is what she doesn't want. Her new world is a world of negation. She wants to quit, and so that's what she's going to do. She absolutely disregards all of her duties to the point that it finally angers Leonce enough to confront her, something you know he doesn't like to do. Let's read that one. It seems to me the utmost folly for a woman at the head of a household and the mother of children to spend an atelier days which would be better employed contriving for the comfort of her family. An atelier is an artist studio, by the way. <laughs> and it seems Edna has left all the responsibilities she had as a housewife as well as a mother. Now, let me say, Edna is not slaving over the dusting, the cooking, or bathing her children. 
She has staff for that. She has housekeepers and nannies. But she's not even overseeing what they're doing. Instead, she apparently devotes herself entirely to painting. And surprisingly, Leonce doesn't even have a problem with that in and of itself. Edna tells her husband, I feel like painting. And he's going to say back, then in God's name, paint. But don't let the family go to the devil. There's Madame Ratignol because she keeps up her music. She doesn't let everything else go to chaos. And she's more of a musician than you are a painter. (laughs) (laughs) That may be honest, but it does come across as a little bit harsh. I know. It's a funny line. Uh, And Edna has an interesting comeback. She knows it's not about the painting. She says so. It isn't on account of the painting that I let things go. And then he asks the obvious question, uh, and she doesn't have an answer for it. She doesn't know. Gary, what's going on with Edna? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, you know, I do want to tread carefully right here. But uh, what's fascinating about this book is not so much that Chopin is arguing for any specific course of action or uh, warning against any specific set of behaviors. I mean, she doesn't condemn Edna for anything, not even the affair that she will have with Arabin. You know, instead of judging, Chopin, to me, seems to be raising questions. And it is the questions that she raises that are interesting. Uh, Edna is desperately trying to rewrite the narrative of her life. And there's just no question about that. Uh, But that is an artistic endeavor. And in some ways, it's like painting or singing. And I guess we can say Chopin is blending her metaphors here at this point, but Edna doesn't want to be a parrot and a copy, but she's living her life exactly the way she's painting. It's uncontrolled. It's undisciplined. It's impulsive, you know, and I'd also like to say it's kind of unoriginal too. Uh, There's no doubt that the social roles offered to her are restrictive. There's no doubt her marriage is a problem. But as we get farther into the story, it's hard to believe that even if all these problems could be rectified, that Edna would be able to define a life for herself. I mean, we as humans are always more than a reaction to the social and cultural forces in the world. And I hate to get back to the word we used last week, but I can't even get away from it. You know, even under strict social norms, which I might add, Edna is not under for her time period. She is, after all one of the most privileged humans on planet Earth at that particular time in human history. But even if she were under severe restrictions, she, as a human, and here it is, still has agency. We all do. Well, yes. And to use Chopin's words from Chapter 6, Mrs. Pontelier was beginning to realize her position as an individual, as a human being, and to recognize her relations as an individual to the world within and about her. I think that Edna is like the rest of us, and that it's easier to understand and try to organize or manage the world about us as opposed to the world within us. At least I can see the world outside of me, but I can't necessarily see what's going on inside of me, and how can anyone understand themselves? And so Edna goes to the world of Madame Reese, having discarded the world of Adèle Ratignol. She's going to look at this world of art, the world of the artist, which is where Edna is in chapter 21. And I would argue that this is what we're seeing. These are two polar opposites visions of reality. There's the Adele version of being a woman, a totally objectivized, sensualized, motherly type of woman, that kind of thing, versus this other version of womanhood. And Madame Reese is basically asexual. 
maybe she's not even really a woman at all. She's this other thing we call an artist. <laughs> <laughs> you know, except uh, that world, the world of the artist comes with its own share of difficulties. You know, never mind. It is, it's just simply more uncomfortable. And uh, Reese's house is described as dingy and there's a good deal of smoke and soot and it's a small apartment and there's a, you know, a magnificent piano, but no elegant food or servants or no silver trays for calling cards. And, she cooks her meals on a gasoline stove herself. And let me quote here. Uh, it says, It was there also that she ate, keeping her belongings in a rare old buffet, dingy and battered from a hundred years' use. Yeah, but then there's the music. And when the music filled the room, it floated out upon the night, over the housetops, the crescent of the river, losing itself in the silence of the air. And that makes Edna sob. The art is otherworldly, and there is something to that, something attractive, maybe metaphysical. And I think it's interesting to notice that Kate Chopin has a very specific choice of music. I'm not sure we mentioned in episode one, but Chopin was a very accomplished pianist in her own right. She played by ear, but she also read music. And she held parties. In fact, they're exactly like the ones Madame Ratignolle throws in the book. They dance, they play cards. Music was a big deal in real life to Kate Chopin. So when she includes specific music, which she does by name in her writing, she's not just dropping songs in. She's using them for specific reasons, which are worth paying attention to. And in this novel, the pianist Frederick Chopin is selected intentionally. I thought at first maybe because he had the same name, but that's not true. They're not related. <laughs> Gary, as a musician yourself, what can you tell us about Frederick Chopin, the Polish composer and pianist? <laughs> well... Let me try to make this comparison and put it in perspective. I don't know if we can, but, you know, Frederick Chopin's music in his day was the um, pelvis gyrating Elvis rock and roll version of its day. It was considered provocative. It was, it was edgy. I mean, you know, now it's just classical, but 19th century attitudes uh, towards this type of harmony driven uh, romantic music would really seem hysterical to us. Uh, they were seen as sensual and a destructive force, especially for women. <laughs> so imagine that Chopin's uh, music making women go astray. Anyway, um, this may even be uh, Kate Chopin's sassy narrator playing with us again. Frederick Chopin's music is definitely driving sensuality in Edna. You know, to say uh, Kate Chopin is using it ironically is really, you know, likely taking it too far. But I don't know, maybe not. I'm, this narrator has been ironic before. Sure. And, uh, the main undeniable connection is that Madame Reese plays impromptus. Impromptus are improvisational music. You know, Frederick Chopin uh, wrote only four of them in his career. And the one Kate selects here is called Fantasy Impromptu in C Minor. It's the only one in a minor key that he ever wrote. Uh, you can pull up on Spotify and listen to it for yourself, but be careful. You know, I did. It could be, <laughs> could be dangerous. You know, uh, it's full of rhythmical difficulties. It's difficult to play. It's quick. It's full of emotion. You know, there's banging on the low notes at times and trills and you know, rolling notes going faster and slower at other points. And it's frenzied almost sometimes. And Frederick Chopin, by the way, was... Uh, a really temperamental person and in some ways shares a lot of the personality quirks of Madame Reese. Huh. Yeah, but he did have an interesting philosophy about music that I really like, and it really does kind of connect to our book. 
Uh, he is recorded to have said this. Words were born of sounds. Sounds existed before words. Sounds are used to make music, just as words are used to form language. Thought is expressed through sounds. An undefined human utterance is mere sound. The art of manipulating sounds is music. Huh. Music is thoughts as sounds. I kind of like that expression. Undefined human utterance. Especially in regard to Edna, it makes sense because she absolutely cannot get her thoughts out. And even if she could, she doesn't seem willing to share them with anyone. She expresses more than once that her inner world is hers and hers alone. She can't express her thoughts when she talks to Adele. She can't get them out when she talks to her husband. But even when we're here with Madame Reese, this is a very safe place for her. And we don't see her expressing herself. At the end of chapter 21, she's sobbing at the music, and she's holding in her letter, I mean, this letter from Robert Lebrun, but it's crumpled and damp with tears. <laughs> you know, it would have helped her to have found someone to talk to, you know, maybe the uh, Dr. Mandalay that Leonce goes to in chapter 22 for advice, but uh, about, you know, how to help his wife. Well, what we find out from Leonce's conversation with that doctor is that Edna isn't doing that. She's withdrawn from every single person in her world. She won't even go to her sister's wedding. What the doctor sees when he visits with them at dinner is this very engaging outwardly woman, but it's an inwardly withdrawn person on the inside. The doctor even wonders if she's having an affair, and at this point, she is not. You know, she is, to use the original title of the book, One Solitary Soul. You know, as a human being, there are only so many types of relationships that we find meaning in. And we have our parents and birth family. We have our intimate relationship. We have our children, you know, if we have any. We have our professional relationships. We have all of our social friends. You know, at least one of these has to be working for us. And Edna finds no satisfaction in any of her relationships. I mean, she doesn't have a trusting relationship anywhere. Yeah, it seems that every single relationship in her life is a burden. Edna is trying to relieve herself of every single responsibility in the world, hoping that getting out of relationships will kind of help her expand her identity. The problem is getting rid of responsibilities isn't the answer. To find meaning in the world, you have to do something worth doing. You have to do something that takes strength and energy, something that can make you proud. Of course, we see this every day in the classroom. It's not helpful to give students high marks or grades for doing nothing that makes them weak. But when you give them a difficult task and they're able to do it, they grow, they get strong, they learn that they're capable of great responsibilities. If you want to get strong, you have to take on responsibilities. This isn't what Edna does. She goes in the exact opposite direction. You know, Edna does look for models. uh, And if she wanted a career path or a professional life like we think of in our era, Chopin threw in a character that could have served that function. Uh, It's what I see going on in the chapters about the races. Edna is actually really good at horse gambling. I mean, she knows horses, and she knows the horse racing business, and she knows it well. And the text actually says that she knows more about horse racing than anybody in New Orleans. And, uh, in fact, it's her knowledge about horses that puts her on the radar, the man she eventually has a sexual relationship, Mr. Alsay Arabin. Yeah, well, we'll read that section where well, we see this relationship uh, develop. 
Uh, Arabin has first seen her perform well at the tracks, and to use the narrator's words, he admired Edna extravagantly after meeting her at the races with her father. We also meet Mrs. Highcamp, and she's a completely different version of a feminine ideal. Although, interestingly enough, neither Edna nor at least the narrator find her interesting enough to give a first name. This confused me when I read this, because Mrs. James Highcamp would have been this type stereotypical liberated woman that I would have thought Chopin would have wanted Edna to admire. I mean, she's clearly sexually liberated, but beyond that, she's worldly, intelligent, slim, tall. Her daughter is educated and participates in political societies and reads big books, that sort of thing. But nothing about Mrs. James Highcamp is alluring to Edna. She suffers Mrs. James Highcamp because she has this interest in Arabin. So let's read about this interesting encounter between Arabin and Edna. There were possibly a few track men out there who knew the racehorse as well as Edna, but there were certainly none who knew it better. She sat between her two companions as one having authority to speak. She laughed at Arabin's pretensions and deplored Mrs. Highcamp's ignorance. The racehorse was a friend and intimate associate of her childhood. The atmosphere of the stables and the breath of the bluegrass paddock revived in her memory and lingered in her nostrils. She did not perceive that she was talking like her father as the sleek geldings ambled in review before them. She played for very high stakes, and fortune favored her. The fever of the game flamed in her cheeks and eyes, and it got into her blood and into her brain like an intoxicant. People turned their heads to look at her, and more than one lent an attractive ear to her utterances, hoping thereby to secure the elusive but ever-desired tip. Arabin caught the contagion of the excitement which drew him to Edna like a magnet. Mrs. Highcamp remained, as usual, unmoved with her indifferent stare and uplifted eyebrows. See, this is, to me, Edna at her best, and I can see why Arabin becomes fascinated with Edna. She's smart and clearly different from the other women. At the end of that evening in particular, they dine with the high camps, and afterwards Arabin takes Edna home, and the text says this, She wanted something to happen, something, anything. She did not know what. She regretted that she had not made Arabin stay a half hour to talk over the horses. She counted the money she had won. There's nothing else to do. She went to bed and tossed there for hours in a sort of monotonous agitation. <laughs> and so the relationship with Arabin is born out of boredom. Uh-huh. The dominant movement in Edna's life is always drifting towards boredom. Edna wants to rewrite her social script, but she can't define what she wants. She has trouble speaking. She has no words to write her story. She doesn't want to be a mother. She doesn't want to work except in sunny weather. She has an opportunity with Ms. Highcamp to get involved if she wanted to with political or literary women, but that doesn't interest her. She can make a name of herself at the races, but the money doesn't motivate her. She always had it, in some ways maybe doesn't know what life is without money. So she's going to, de to default with this relationship with Arabin. I'm going to suggest that she's again playing the part of a parrot. 
messing around with Arabim is just the kind of thing that in her world and maybe in her mind she sees men doing. It's what Victor does. It may be what her husband does. It's likely what Robert is doing in Mexico. So she's mimicking male behavior since she hasn't really found a female model that she's interested in. And Arabin is a perfect opportunity for this sort of thing. (laughs) And yet she's self-aware enough to not be seduced by Arabin. I mean, the first time he really tries to make a move on her by kissing her hand, this is what she says, which I really find insightful. When she was alone, she looked mechanically at the back of her hand, which he had kissed so warmly. Then she leaned her head down on the mantelpiece. She felt something like a woman who, in a moment of passion, is betrayed into an act of infidelity and realizes the significance of the act without being wholly awakened from its glamour. The thought was passing vaguely through her mind. What would he think? She did not mean her husband. She was thinking of Robert Lebrun. Her husband seemed to her now like a person whom she had married without love as an excuse. She lit a candle and went up to her room. I'll say Arabin was absolutely nothing to her, yet his presence, his manners, the warmth of his glances, and above all, the touch of his lips upon her hand had acted like a narcotic upon her. She slept a languorous sleep interwoven with vanishing dreams. So, Gary, are we supposed to see a connection between Edna's boredom with her new life and her desire to pursue this relationship with Arabin? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, again, uh, Dr. Kate Chopin is playing the psychologist here in the story. And, you know, uh, it's been pretty much confirmed that there is a relationship between boredom and increased risk-taking behaviors. Uh, you know, in other words, the more bored you find yourself, the more likely you are to do something risky. It's one reason teenagers are so prone to dangerous behaviors, you know, for example, like drugs. They don't uh, know yet how to cope with personal downtime, and they they can't manage their own boredom. And uh, bored people don't know what they want to do. And I like to point out something my grandmother said for years. Okay. I heard her say many, many times, only stupid people are bored. (laughs) So guess what I never said? Oh, no, you never said you were bored. (laughs) That's right. Um, and, and here's another Kester that just sound familiar in the life of Mrs. Edna Pontier. Notice that last line, vanishing dreams. Edna is not dreaming. She's not working at writing a script for her life, structuring a story for herself. I mean, her, her dreams and not building anything, they're vanishing. And that's not good. And uh, it, it's not that it doesn't have illusions. I mean, she does. But a dream is not an illusion. You know, dreams are what inspire us to do something different. Uh, both a dream and an illusion are unreal, but an illusion will always be an illusion. It has no chance of becoming real. And out of dreams, really new realities are born. And we are not seeing Edna dream. I mean, her dreams are vanishing. Which brings us to the place where I want to end this episode. Chapter 26 in Edna's decision to move out of her husband's house. I mentioned that this book is constructed with the archetypal three uh, used all over the place. And Edna has been living on Esplanade Street, the wealthy gilded cage life, if you will. And she doesn't want that. She's visited Madame Reese's apartment, but she doesn't want to live like that. Uh, It's, you know, cheerless and dingy to Edna. So what does she do? She moves two steps away from Esplanade Street to this house that Ellen, the housekeeper, calls the Pigeon House. Now, pigeons are the oldest domesticated bird in the world. Another (laughs) bird reference. Yes, they never fly far from home. There's a thing, you know, homing pigeons. That's a term. She's building an illusion. 
Edna is going out of her husband's house, but he's it's around the corner. And is she really building a new life? I mean, what is this about? Edna describes it to Madame Reese this way. I know I shall like it, like the feeling of freedom and independence. <laughs> but is the feeling of freedom and independence the same as actually having freedom and independence? My point, exactly. Yeah. They're worlds apart. But Edna, she lives in her feelings. She works when she feels like it. She plays with her children when she feels like it. And now she admits to Madame Reese that she's in love with Robert Lebrun, who, by the way, is coming back. And when she finds out, she feels, and I quote, glad and happy to be alive. And what does she do with that feeling? She goes to a candy store and buys a box of candy to send to her children, who, by the way, are with their grandparents in the country. And she writes a charming letter to her husband, too. Her letter was brilliant and brimming with cheerfulness. I'm sorry, but Edna, as the the feminist in me kind of gets frustrated with her. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, Edna is struggling for sure, and she can't connect with people. She can't identify a dream worth pursuing. She can't write her own story. I mean, there is no doubt that a lot of this has to do with cultural and social uh, forces at work in a world. And, you know, these are powerful forces, powerful forces. However, I want to point this out. It's not the outside forces of her world that will do her in. Edna is smart. I mean, she's beautiful. She's charming. She acts as a lot going for her, especially for a woman during this time period. If Chopin had wanted to write a story where a woman breaks free and soars, I mean, she has a protagonist who's positioned to do that very thing. Yeah, but Edna's a mess. <laughs> and, you know, maybe that's why she's relatable. Many of us have made messes of our lives, and we have an incredible ability to screw up. But humans are also incredibly resilient. I mean, look at Chopin's own life. At one point in her life, she was Adele Ratignon, and at another point, she was Madame Reese. She may even have been Miss James Highcamp, to tell you the truth, to a lesser degree. <laughs> why is Edna struggling here? Well, you know, humans are incredibly resilient, but you know what else we are? We are social beings. And so, you know, let's revisit that original book title, One Solitary Soul. I mean, it's my experience that no one gets out alone. I mean, not even a rich, not even a beautiful, not even the smart. No one gets out alone. Ah, and that is strong enough to confront the forces without but who will help her confront the forces within? And that is the best point to make. And so next episode, we will see her confront those internal forces. And uh, there are no more female characters to meet, no more male characters either, really, for that matter. We will see Edna confront Edna alone, and we'll see what happens. So until then, thank you for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please share it with a friend, a relative, your classmates, your students. I mean, we only grow when you share it. Also, uh, come visit with us via our social media. Check us out on howtolovelitpodcast.com. Feel free to ask questions, give us your thoughts, recommend books. These are all things we love. And again, thanks for being with us today. Peace out.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.